accounts of revivals. I might speak of the courage of the Master in his sickness under the apprehensions of death. When the spots did appear on his body, he sent for me and desired me to pray with him, told me he was now going home, desired me to write to his friends and let them know, quote, that it did not repent him of his stay in the city, though they had been so importunate with him to come away, but he had found so much of God's presence in his abode here that he had no reason to repent. He told me where he would be buried and desired me to preach his funeral sermon on Psalm 16 last. In thy presence is fullness of joy, and in thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore, end quote. But the Lord raised him again beyond the expectation of himself, friends or physicians. Let him not forget God's mercies and suffer too much worldly business to crowd in upon him and choke the remembrance and sense of God's goodness so singular. But let him show by his singularity and meekness, humility, self-denial and love, zeal and holy walking, that the Lord has been singularly gracious unto him. But when I speak of home concernments, let me not forget to look abroad. The plague now increaseth exceedingly, and fears there are amongst us, that within a while there will not be enough alive to bury the dead, and that the city of London will now be quite depopulated by this plague. Now some ministers, formerly put out of their places, who did abide in the city, when most of the ministers in the place were fled and gone from the people, as well as from the disease into the country, seeing the people crowd so fast into the grave in eternity, who seemed to cry as they went for spiritual physicians, and perceiving the churches to be open and pulpits to be open, and finding pamphlets flung about the streets of pulpits to be let, they judged from the law of God and nature did now dispense with, yea, command their preaching in public places, though the law of man, as it is to be supposed in ordinary cases, did forbid them to do it. Surely if there had been a law that none should practice physic in the city, but such as were licensed by the College of Physicians, and both of those when there was the greatest need of them, should in the time of the plague have retired into the country, and other physicians who had as good skill in physic, and no license should have stayed amongst the sick, none would have judged it to have been a breach of law, in such an extraordinary case, to endeavor by their practice, though without a license to save the lives of those who by good care in physic were capable of a cure, and they could hardly have freed themselves from the guilt of murder of many bodies if for a nicety of the law, in such a case of necessity, they should have neglected to administer physic. The case was the same with the unlicensed ministers who stayed when so many of the licensed ones were gone. And as the need of souls was greater than the need of bodies, the sickness of the one being more universal and dangerous than the sickness of the other, and the saving or losing of the soul being so far beyond the preservation or death of the body, so the obligation upon ministers was stronger and the motive to preach greater. And for them to have incurred the guilt of soul murder by their neglect to administer soul physic would have been more heinous and unanswerable that they were called by the Lord into public. I suppose that few of any seriousness will deny when the Lord did so eminently own them in giving many seals of their ministry unto them. Now they are preaching, and every sermon was unto them as if they were preaching their last. Old times seem now to stand at the head of the pulpit with its great sight saying with a hoarse voice, Work while it is called a day, at night I will mow thee down. Grim death seems to stand at the side of the pulpit with its sharp arrow, saying, Do thou shoot God's arrows, and I will shoot mine. Ministers now had awakened calls to seriousness and fervor in their ministerial work, to preach on the side and brink of the pit into which thousands were tumbling, 
To pray under such near views of eternity might be a means to stir up the spirits more than ordinary. Now there is such a vast concourse of people in the churches where these ministers are to be found that they cannot many times come near the pulpit doors for the press but are forced to climb over the pews to them and such a face is now seen in the assemblies as seldom was seen before in London. Such eager looks, such open ears, such greedy attention as if every word would be eaten with which dropped from the mouths of the ministers. If you ever saw a drowning man catch at a rope, you may guess how eagerly many people did catch at the word when they were ready to be overwhelmed by this overflowing scourge which was passing through the city, when death was knocking at so many doors and God was crying aloud by His judgments, and ministers were now sent to knock, cry aloud, and lift up their voice like a trumpet. Then the people began to open the ear and the heart which were fast shut and barred before. How did they then hearken as for their lives, as if every sermon were their last, as if death stood at the door of the church and would seize upon them so soon as they came forth, as if the arrows which flew so thick in the city would strike them before they could get to their houses, as if they were immediately to appear before the bar of that God who by his ministers was now speaking unto them? Great were the impressions which the word then made upon many hearts beyond the power of man to effect, and beyond what the people before ever felt, as some of them have declared. When sin is ripped up and reproved, oh, the tears that slide down from the eyes, when the judgments of God are denounced, oh, the tremblings which are upon the conscience, when the Lord Jesus Christ is made known and proffered, oh, the longing desires and openings of heart unto Him, when the riches of the gospel are displayed and the promises of the covenant of grace are set forth and applied, oh, the inward burnings and sweet flames which were in the affections, now the net is cast, and many fishes are taken. The pull is moved by the angel, and many leprous spirits and sin-sick souls are cured. Many were brought to the birth, and I hope not a few were born again and brought forth. A strange movement there was upon the hearts of multitudes in the city, and I am persuaded that many were brought over effectually into a closure with Jesus Christ, whereas some died by the plague with willingness and peace. Others remain steadfast in God's ways unto this day. But convictions, I believe, many hundreds had, if not thousands, which I wish that none have stifled, and with the dog returned to their vomit, and with the sow have wallowed again in the mire of their former sins. The work was the more great, because the instrument made use of were more obscure and unlikely, whom the Lord did make choice of the rather, that the glory by ministers and people might be ascribed in full unto himself. This seems a proper place for introducing the following passage, which both shows what terrors the ungodly are liable to in the view of death, and likewise that the above work was very different from mere terror. From Dyke in his book of the deceitfulness of man's heart, chapter 20, quote, In that great sweat in the time of King Edwards, as long, says one, as the ferventness of the plague lasted, there was crying, Mercy, good Lord, mercy, mercy. The ministers of God's word were sought for in every corner. They could not rest. They might not sleep. You must come to my Lord. You must come to my Lady. Come if you love God. And if you love their salvation, tarry not for God's sake, minister, say the sick folks. Tell us what we shall do to avoid God's wrath. Take these bags. Pay so much to such a man, for I deceived him. Give, Give him so much, for I got it off him by usury. I made a crafty bargain with such an one. Restore him so much and desire him to forgive me. Divide this bag among the poor. Carry this to the hospital. Pray for me for God's sake. Good Lord, forgive me. And so on. This was the dissimulation of the people. For three or four days while the execution was, 
But after when the rage was somewhat swaged, then returned they to their vomit, worse than ever they were. Then, that they had before caused to be restored and given in alms, they seek to recover by more evil devouring circumstances. End quote. A sample of the earnest exhortations given at that time from a sermon by the said Mr. Vincent at the funeral of the Reverend Mr. Janeway, the 18th of September, 1665. The text is Isaiah 62, verses 1 and 2. If the righteous are liable to death, surely then the wicked are much more liable. Your danger is great at all times, but much more in such a year of visitation as this, and in such a place as London, where the evil arrows of pestilence do fly so thick about your ears. Sinners, have ye not read the black bill of 6,988 who died by the plague the first week of this month, and 6,544 who died by the plague the second week? And do the bell sound a retreat of this enemy death which has got amongst us? Do the multitude of coffins which you see carried every hour to the grave speak a decrease of the plague? Many thousands are fallen, and more thousands are like to fall. And who of you all that are in your sins can reasonably hope to escape? Some of the righteous themselves do fall. And if God spareth not his own people, how can you think of preservation? If you have not entered into covenant with God, can you now make covenant with death? What security can you have now? What peace can you find when you have not made your peace with God? And you are in such danger every hour of being sent forth to his judgment seat by this grim messenger whom none can resist. Sinners, your condition is very sad. Your straits are very great. God has hedged you in and you cannot get away. He hath you at his mercy. His bow is now bent. His arrow is upon the string. He may smite you while you sit in those pews or stand in those aisles or so soon as your feet shall carry you forth of these church doors. Hark! Do you not hear the knells which are ringing in every place for your dying friends and fellow sinners? The knell may be for you. Look! Do you not see the mouth of the pit open, and before it be shut again you may be put in? You see the righteous perish, but you are in danger of a far worse perishing. Their bodies perish, but you are in danger of your souls perishing. Their souls are taken away by angels and conveyed to heaven. But when your bodies drop into the grave, your souls will be dragged by devils into hell. Sinners, this night you may be in hell. Hell receiveth many guests tonight, and the stoutest of you may help to fill up their number this night. And what do you think to do? Will you go on still in the way of sin? Will nothing stop you in your course of wickedness? Will you not yet lay down your weapons whereby you have been fighting against the King of Heaven? Can you make your party good against Him? Can you defend yourselves or fly from Him? Is it good to provoke Him still when He is so furious? Will you run to the utmost line of His patience? Consider that the next sin you willfully commit. God's patience may be quite spent and become to an end, and then all the world cannot save you from the stroke of death. Venture then no farther. Stand, stand, sinners. Stir not a foot in the way of sin. But retire your pace and return to God and make your peace with Him. And peradventure He may hide you in this day of His fierce anger. Are the righteous and by consequence all liable to death? Let me then exhort you all to think and prepare for death. 
Methinks you should hardly be able to think of anything else in such a day as this, when the plague is so hot in and about the city, when death walks in every street, breaks in at so many doors, and sits in so many windows, and hath already dragged more bodies into the grave within this four months, than I believe this whole church would hold, were they heaped up from the pavement to the roof, and still this tyrant rages and prevaileth, and it is not very unlikely that all of you which are here this day may be taken captive by death, and within a few weeks or days go down into the pit. Think, oh, think seriously how near death may be unto you, and how suddenly these bodies which you take care daily to feed and clothe may become food for worms and put on an earthland garment. Think what a thin veil of flesh is between you and eternity. How small and weak the thread of life is which ties soul and body together. And how easily death can break and tear the veil and tie or cut the thread. That this may be done before tomorrow. And then your naked souls must appear before the highest majesty. Unto your everlasting joy or sorrow. Think that the same hands which dig the grave for our dear brother may be employed before this week is ended in digging graves for you that the same feet which brought him to this place may bring you in like manner. Think how quickly you may be smitten by the poisonous arrows. When you next enter your houses, the plague may follow you at your heels and seize upon you with such strength as you shall not be able to make any resistance. Fancy to yourselves a dizziness in your head, a pain in your back, a trembling in your flesh and joints your blood all corrupted and spirits poisoned by this disease. And after many convulsions and much anguish, the spots breaking forth in your arms and breast, the almost certain forerunners of death, and then death appearing with a grim look and wringing away your souls from your bodies. Then fancy your bodies cold, stiff, stark, and stretched out to their full length in a coffin, your fallen jaws bound up with a napkin, your eyes closed, your blood chill and settled and your spirit's gone, your soul departed. Then fancy your bodies brought to the sides of the pit by your weeping friends and cast to a cold grave and covered presently with earth, and your friends walking over your head, soon forgetting that they had such a friend except the thoughts of their soon following after you should put them in mind. Then fancy when your bodies are in the earth an invasion of them by worms. They're creeping into your eyes, mouths, necks, breasts, bellies, and every part and eating you through and through, turning your whole carcass into putrefaction. And then think of the appearance of your souls before the bar of God, which will be immediately upon their separation. Think of the account you must then give and the sentence which then you must receive according to your works. And now, beloved, examine yourself whether you be prepared for such a change, whether you be ready for such an appearance and account, and let me exhort you without any further delay to prepare. Suppose you were now lying upon your deathbeds and groaning out your last breath. What would you wish you had been? Oh, that I had been a regenerate, converted person. Oh, that I had been a true believer and righteous person. Would not this be the language of your wishes, the breathing of your desires? Oh, labor now that you may be so, then it may be too late to be made so, but now it is not too late. Oh, pray earnestly unto the Lord to make you such persons. What would you in such an hour wish you had done? Oh, that I had made my peace with God. Oh, that I had made it my business to be religious. Oh, that I had lived in a course of obedience to the commandments of the Lord. Beloved, if you have neglected this hitherto, neglect it no longer. As yet God stretched forth a hand and holds forth a scepter of grace to you. 
Apply yourself to Him and cry for mercy and pardon and grace to serve Him the short remainder of your days and give up yourselves to God and covenant with full purpose of heart to stick close to Him as long as you live. What would be the grief of your hearts and wound your consciences in the dying hour? Oh, my sins, they trouble me. They are like a heavy load upon me which I fear will sink me into the bottomless pit. Oh, my drunkenness, my uncleanness. Oh, how bitter are my sweet pleasures of sin which I have reaped. My covetousness, my unrighteousness. Oh, how unprofitable are my riches in the day of calamity. Beloved, take heed of these sins now, which at the last will bite like an adder and sting like a serpent. Get your sins pardoned and your sins mortified. Sin is the sting of death. Get it removed. What would you wish on your deathbed that you had obtained? Oh, that I had an interest in Christ. Oh, that I had my heart furnished with grace. Oh, that I had laid up my treasure in heaven. Beloved, let me tell you that a sick bed and a deathbed is a very unlikely place to obtain these things if you do not get them before. It is a time for the using of grace. Few do obtain it then, ten thousand to one, but you are undone forever if you have these things to get then. Now fly to Christ and lay hold of Him by faith. Now cry for grace and be ready to receive it. Now lay up your treasures above and get your affections set upon them. And then you will be happy in your death. Section 5. More instances of diligent and zealous ministers of Christ in England and Wales who died towards the end of this century after 1660. Mr. Joseph Elaine was born in Wiltshire in the year 1633. In his childhood, he showed a singular sweetness of disposition and a remarkable diligence in everything. When he was about 11 years old, he was very constant in private prayer and so serious and intent on it that he would not be taken off by the coming of any accidentally into the places of his retirement. About this time, his brother, Mr. Edward Elaine, a worthy minister of the gospel, died. Whereupon Joseph earnestly desired that he might be trained up to succeed him in the work of the ministry, which request was readily hearkened to by his father, who accordingly sent him to school. When he was about sixteen years old, he went to the university and was placed in Lincoln College in Oxford, where he had not been long before a Wiltshire place, becoming void in Corpus Christi College, he was chosen scholar of that house. Being settled there, he gave early and excellent proofs of his indefatigableness in his studies, accounting it his great happiness that he had gained this opportunity of improving his learning, and truly he spared no labor day nor night. He thought no pains too great which he employed for that end. By his good will he would nothing else but pray and study. If friends came to visit him and study in times, though at other times he was very civil and sociable, they were sure to find him within, but not sure that he would let them in. He could seldom be found in bed after four in the morning, though sometimes he went not to bed till about one. So covetous was he of time that as he could scarce spare any for sleep, so neither for food, it was common for him to give away his commons at least once a day that he might gain the more time to his study. His early accomplishments were so taken notice of that no sooner was he a bachelor of arts, but he was even compelled to become a tutor and presently was entrusted with as great a number of students as any in the house. 
Some of his scholars were graduates in divinity, singular ornaments to that society, and profitable instruments in the Church of Christ. During his abode there, a chaplain's place falling void, he chose that before a fellowship which he knew in a little time would fall to him, of course, and this choice he never repented of. Yea, he often reflected upon it with a great deal of comfort, for he had always an ardent affection for prayer, insomuch as he and his friend could hardly meet. But before they parted, they must pray together. What a pleasure then was it to him twice a day to engage a whole society in so beloved an exercise. I'm reading about Joseph Elaine, the Puritan in the early 1600s. And well was it for the college that he so esteemed it. Scarce was it possible that any could have performed that office better. He did not trouble them with a great deal of noise, vain, vain tautologies, crude effusions, instead of prayer. His spirit was serious, his gesture reverent, his word few, but premeditated and well weighed, pithy, solid, and fully expressive of his truly humble and earnest desires. He hated the sauciness which some miscall holy boldness, and drew near to God not as if he had been going to play, but as became a creature overawed with the majesty of his great Creator. He prayed with the Spirit and with the understanding also. He confessed sin with real grief, inward hatred, and detestation of it. He craved mercies like one that felt the want and worth of what he begged, with faith, fervency, and humble importunity, his affections working but working rationally as well as strongly. He was of a sweet disposition and of as highly civil a conversation as a man subject to the common frailties of human nature could be. He had scarce a gesture which did not seem to speak and by a powerful charming rhetoric affect all whom he had conversed with. Besides other moral perfections that he was endowed with, it might be truly said, as a historian said of the emperor, that made up of nothing but courtesy and affability. His love and affection to the souls of others was most admirable, to whom he desired and endeavored to do all the good possible, insomuch as some there were and are who verily think they should never have found the way to eternal life if he had lived to himself. His charity to the poor prisoners in Oxford jail were very eminent, amongst whom, as Mr. Perkins did at Cambridge of his own accord, he began to preach and held on constantly whilst he remained in the town. Once a fortnight, for above the space of twelve months, encouraging them to give attendance upon his ministry by a considerable allowance of bread, that week he preached at his own cost. He used also at other times frequently to visit others, who in the world were but mean and low, his main design, together with the relieving of their temporal wants, being to assist their souls in the way to heaven. Indeed, all his converses, wherever he came, he was like fire, warming, refreshing, and quickening all that were about him, kindling in them the like zeal for God and goodness which he had in himself. None there were that came to visit or to be acquainted with him, but if the fault were not in themselves, they might get much good by him, yea, so much as to be forever the better for him. It was hardly possible to be in his company and not to hear such things from him, as if well weighed might have been enough to make one out of conceit with sin and in love with virtue. He had much delightful communion with God. His soul was much exercise in divine contemplation. And to, and to provoke others to the like exercise, he would often speak with ineffable sweetness his soul had found in the stated meditations upon the divine attributes. 
In prayer he was not ordinarily so much in confessing of sin and complaining of corruption and infirmities, though he expressed a due sense of these, as in admiring and praising God and His infinite glorious perfections, and in the mention of His wonderful works, particularly of the wonders of His love in Jesus Christ. While he lay sick at the bath, he sent for many poor persons, both aged and children, and gave them catechisms, engaging them to learn and to give an account of their proficiency therein. And they came cheerfully to him, being encouraged thereto by his winning carriage, his giving them money, and by feeding them. As a minister, besides his labors in that great congregation where the, where the Lord had placed him, the care of many other churches lay daily upon him. He went abroad frequently into other parishes about the country, amongst poor, ignorant people that lived in dark corners, having none to take care of their souls, preached to them himself, and stirred up many of his brethren to do the like. He had an eye to the poor Welsh, and had an influence upon sending some ministers among them, intending also to have spent some time among them himself, and was hardly withheld from it by the persuasions of his friends, who told him his inability to travel by reason of the great weakness he lay under. The reading of this did so inflame the zeal of Mr. Thomas Gouge, that he was restless in his spirit, till having settled his affairs about London, he yeah. had an opportunity to prosecute this design, since which time he hath made many journeys both into South and North Wales, where he has done much good. And by the help of divers of his reverend brethren, and many others, has placed out many hundreds of poor children to school to learn English, has given them catechisms and other good books, besides Bibles and New Testaments and Welsh, and has procured the printing of Welsh Bibles, whereof there were very few to be had of the practice of piety and so on, to be distributed among them. Much of his time he spent in private converse with God and his own soul. He much delighted to perform secret devotions in the sight of heaven and in the open air when his opportunity served. Many days he kept alone, and then by his good will he would betake himself to a solitary house, probably that he might freely use his voice as his affections led him to, which he could not have done where there were inhabitants, and that he might converse with God without distraction. His society with others was always mingled with holy and heavenly discourses. He took all opportunities to instruct, exhort, and reprove, which he never failed to do when he judged it necessary, whatever the event might prove. And truly his reproofs were accompanied with such humility, tenderness, and compassion that they seldom, if ever did, miscarry. In the houses where he sojourned, his lips fed many. God freely gave it to him, and he gave it to others. None could live quietly in any open sin under his inspection. When he came to abide in any house, he brought a blessing with him. And when he departed, he left a blessing behind him. When he was transplanting himself from one family to another, as his occasion sometimes required, he would call all the people one by one into his chamber, from whence it was observed that scarce anyone returned with dry eyes. In manners doubtful and disputable, he was not peremptory. He laid not more stress upon opinions and religion than belonged to them. He was not like many who are so confident in their determinations that they will hardly hold communion, nay, scarce so much as a pleasing conversation with any man who cannot think and speak and act as they do in everything. He would freely and familiarly converse with those who were found in the faith as to the fundamentals of religion and holy in their lives of all persuasions. I'm reading about the life of Joseph Villain, the author of An Alarm to the Unconverted. 
He was insatiably greedy of the conversion of souls, wherein he had no small success in the course of his ministry. And to promote this end, he poured out his very heart in prayer and preaching. He imparted not the gospel only, but his own soul to his hearers. His supplications and exhortations were many times so affectionate, so full, so full of, of holy zeal and life, that they quite overcame his auditors. He so melted over them that he thawed, mollified, and sometimes dissolved the hardest hearts. But while he melted others, he wasted, and at last consumed himself. He was not satisfied with these, his public employments, but constantly went from house to house, and there dealt both with governors, children, and servants, instructing them especially in the fundamentals both of the law and gospel, whom he found to be ignorant, gently reproving where he found anything amiss, exhorting them to diligence both in their general and particular callings. He inspected so far as he could into the state of every particular person, and accordingly reproved, comforted, and encouraged as he found occasion, yet all with so much tenderness, humility, and self-denial that he gained much upon the affections of all that entertained him, and so much as such as were not visited at first, at length came forth and called upon him to come and help him also. When he went from house to house, he used to give them notice the day before, desiring that they would have their whole family together against he came. Which being done, he used to instruct the younger sword in the principles of religion by asking questions out of the catechism, the answers whereunto he used to open and explain. He used also to inquire of them about their spiritual estate, laboring to make them sensible of the evil and danger of sin, of the corruption of our natures and misery of an unconverted state, provoking to look after the true remedy, to turn from all their sins to God, to close with Christ upon his own terms, to follow after holiness, to watch over their hearts and lives, to mortify their lust to redeem their time and to prepare for eternity. These things he explained to their understandings and pressed upon their consciences with the most cogent arguments and considerations, showing what great privileges they did enjoy, the many gospel sermons they did or might hear, the many talents they were entrusted with, and the great account they were to give to God of the same. Besides, he left with them several counsels and directions to be carefully remembered and practiced for the good of their own souls. Such as were serious and religious, he used to help forward in holiness by answering their doubts and encouraging them against their difficulties and discouragement. And before he left them, he used to deal with the governors and with such as were grown up to the years of discretion singly, that so as much as possible he could, he might know the condition of each particular person and the better apply himself to each of them. If he found them to neglect family duties, he used to press them to set them up by reading the word of God and prayer, giving them directions therein, and exhorting them to the practice of secret duties. He also persuaded mistresses of families to give their children and servants time for such secret duties, and to encourage them therein. If the family where he came was ignorant, he would insist the longer in instructing and catechizing, if loose in reproving and convincing, if godly in encouraging and directing. He used to spend five afternoons every week in these exercises from one or two o'clock until seven, in which space he used to visit three or four families, sometimes more as they were greater or less. Thus he went through the whole town and then presently began again. And he did often bless God for the great success he found in those exercises, saying that God made him hereby as instrumental to the good of souls as by his public ministry. He was full of holy projects by what means he might most effectually promote the honor of Christ and the salvation of souls. And what he judged to be conducive to these ends, he prosecuted with such wisdom and vigor that he seldom failed to accomplish it. 
considering how much conscientiousness and frequent self-examination might tend to the weakening of sin and to the furtherance of holiness both in heart and life he earnestly pressed this practice in his public ministry directing his hearers for the performance of it he dealt also with them in private about it and drew a promise from most of them that they would every night before they went to sleep spend some time in secret to call themselves to an account how they had spent that day by proposing several questions to their own hearts which he had drawn in writing and communicated unto them under several heads and many confessed that this practice had been very advantageous to them in their Christian walk. Before the act of uniformity came forth he was very earnest with God day and night to make his way plain unto him that he might not be deprived of his present advantages of saving souls by any scruple upon his conscience. But when he saw those clauses of assent and consent, he was fully satisfied against it, whereas before he was so doubtful that his intimate friends thought he would have conformed, saying he would not leave his ministry for small and dubious matters. Yet though he must quit his station, he judged that the ejection of ministers did not disoblige them from preaching to their people. He went also frequently into the villages and places about the town whence most of their ministers were fled, and wherever he came the Lord was pleased to give him great success. Many were converted, and the generality encouraged to cleave close to the Lord. This much heightened the rage of some neighbor justices who much threatened and oft sought for him. But it pleased God. He was preserved out of their hands longer than he expired. His usual saying was that if it pleased the Lord to grant him three months' liberty before he went to prison, he should account it a great favor and should more willingly submit to it when he had done some work. Then did he sell off his goods, the better to prepare for a jail or banishment. Only he was desirous that his wife should accompany him, which also was her great desire, it being more grievous to her to think of being absent from him than to suffer with him. The Lord was pleased so far to indulge him that he went on in this course from Bartholomew Day until May the 26th following. Though he was often threatened, yet was he never interrupted. Though many both of town and country came flocking to his meetings at what time soever they were held. He seldom missed of preaching twice a Sabbath and often in the week. Sometimes he preached fourteen times in eight days, often ten and ordinarily six or seven, either at home or abroad. During all this time, besides his frequent discoursings, with such as resorted to him, and for the better enabling him hereunto, he laid aside all his other studies, expecting that his time and liberty would be but short. And truly the Lord did more than ordinarily assist him, as himself took notice, as well as all that heard him. Upon a Saturday in the evening, about six o'clock, he was seized upon by an officer of Compton, who professed that he had rather have been otherwise employed, but that he was urged to a speedy execution of the warrant, by one who was sent on purpose to see it executed, because they feared that none in the town would do it. So Mr. Joseph Elaine came into prison. He prayed and preached, which he called the consecration of it. And as there were several other ministers in prison at the same time, they preached once a day constantly, sometimes twice, and many resorted to their sermons, of which some came eight or ten miles round about out of the country, and multitude came to visit them. Their friends were exceeding kind to them by their frequent visits and supplies. Mr. Elaine's labors were the greatest, who spent almost all the day in conversing with his friends and a great part of the night in his studies and secret duties. At his enlargement from prison, he was more earnest in his work than before, yet, yet willing to preserve his liberty among his people, who had no minister that had the oversight of them, though some came and preached to them in his absence, and such multitudes resorted to him that he judged it necessary to divide them into four parts, resolving to preach to them four times each Sabbath. 
But finding that to be beyond his strength, which was much decayed, he was fain to forbear it, and preached only twice on the Sabbath. Yet often on the weekdays, besides, at home or abroad, he pressed all that feared God, especially such as were of a timorous spirit, to be courageous and active for God, and to be much in conversing together. Now their ministers were withdrawn, much in praises and thanksgivings to God, delighting themselves in Him, and denying themselves for Him, and, and resigning themselves and all they did enjoy to him, that the world might see they could live comfortably on God alone, on his attributes and promises, though they should have nothing else left. But it pleased the all-wise God to take him off from this eager pursuit of his work by visiting him with much weakness. Some of his friends at Taunton come into Dorchester to see him. He was much revived in causing his curtains to be withdrawn. He desired them to stand round the bed in causing his wife to hold forth his hand to them that they might shake him by it. As he was able, he spake thus to him, quote, Oh, how it rejoices me to see your faces and hear your voices, though I cannot as heretofore speak to you. Methinks I am now like old Jacob with all his sons about him. You now see my weak estate and thus I have been for many weeks since I parted from Taunton. But God has been with me, and I hope with you. Your prayers for me have been answered in many ways. The Lord returned them into your own bosoms. My friends, life is mine, death is mine. And that covenant I was preaching to you is all my salvation and all my desire. Although my body doth not prosper, I hope my soul doth. I have lived a sweet life by the promises, and I hope through grace I can die by a promise. The promises of God are everlasting and will stand by us. Nothing but God in them will stand us instead in the day of affliction. My dear friends, I feel the power of those doctrines which I preached unto you upon my heart, the doctrines of faith, of repentance, of self-denial. Oh, that you would live them over. Now I cannot preach to you. It is a shame for a believer to be cast down under afflictions who has so many glorious privileges, justification, sanctification, and eternal glory. We shall be as the angels of God within a little while. Nay, to say the truth, believers are, as it were, angels already. They live in the power of faith. Oh, my friends, live like believers. Trample this world under your feet. Be not taken with its comforts, nor disquieted with its crosses. You will be gone out of it shortly. End quote. A proposal was made by his wife to the doctors whether the bath was not fit for him. Some were for it, others against it, but he himself was very eager for it. And a horse litter being provided for him, though he had not for many days been out of his bed, yet did the, yet did the Lord so strengthen him that in two days after he went, he went almost forty miles to the bath. During his stay there he grew exceedingly in grace to the joy of those about him. He had much communion with God, and often such ravishments of spirit from the consolations of the Holy Ghost that he was not able to express them, nor his weak body to bear them. He was more cheerful than formerly, and exceeding affectionate to his wife and to all his friends, especially to such as were most heavenly. And the Lord was pleased to order it so by his providence that many such came to make use of the bath as Mr. Ferretslaw, Mr. Howe of Torrington, Mr. Joseph Bernard, and divers of his taunted friends, which was a great comfort to him. Here he had many visitors, both friends and strangers, who came to see and discourse with him, having heard what a monument of mercy he was, and to all of them he could so enlarge himself upon all the passages of God's dealing with him, as gave much content to all that heard him, and it did much affect many who were strangers to God and religious as well as to him. He found much favor even amongst the worst, both gentry and others, such as would make a scoff at religion, and others would hearken to him. 
Yea, though he faithfully reproved them for their oaths, excessive drinking, wanton carriage. And there was none of them but did most thankfully accept it from him and showed him more respect after than they had done before, in which he observed much of God's goodness to him and would often say, Oh, how good is it to be faithful unto God! One of the vilest of these persons said of him that he never spake with such a man in his life. His reproofs were managed with so much respect to their persons and places that they said they could not but take them well, though they were sharp and plain. And his manner was before he intended to reprove them, often in the bath, to discourse with them of such things as might be pleasing to them, which did so engage their affections that they delighted to converse with him, who was furnished with manner of discourse for any company, designing to make use of it for spiritual ends, by which means he caught many. Here, though he had many diversions, by his constant bathing every day and frequent visits, besides his weakness, yet he kept his constant season four times a day for his holy retirements. First in the morning from five o'clock until seven, at which time he was carried to the bath and began before dinner. But when he spent less time, and about half an hour before two, just before he went abroad, he appointed his chairman that carried him to the bath to fetch him about three o'clock and to carry him to the schools and almshouses and to the godly poor, especially the widows, to whom he gave money. And he would pray and confer with them about their spiritual state, engaging the teachers and governors to teach them the catechism, whereof he bought and gave them many dozens for the use of their scholars and many other small books which he judged useful for them. And about a week or fortnight after, he would again visit them to see what progress they had made. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D, M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves 
would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.